Welcome to Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the challenges and opportunities facing the global food supply chain and speak with experts working to support a planet of plenty. Antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, in agriculture can negatively impact public health with an ever-increasing rise in bacterial strains that are less and less sensitive to treatment. Antimicrobial resistance has the potential to become one of the greatest problems of our generation. Each year, 700,000 people die of AMR. Without action, the death toll could rise even higher, to as many as 10 million deaths annually by 2050, and cause a 3.8% reduction in annual gross domestic product. All of that, according to the 2017 report, Drug-Resistant Infections, a Threat to Our Economic Future. The world's poorest people, those living in low- and middle-income countries, are disproportionately vulnerable. So the search is on to find ways to reduce antimicrobial use in livestock production. That imperative is challenging scientists like our guests to come up with alternatives. Joining us this episode of Ag Future is Dr. Richard Murphy, Research Director of the Alltech European Bioscience Center in Dunboyne, Ireland. Welcome, Dr. Murphy. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. And first, if you would, for those of us who know just enough science to be dangerous, if you could help us with the difference between antibiotics and antimicrobials, or is there a difference? That's a great question, and I, I guess there can be some confusion with that. And typically, when we think about antibiotics, we're talking about medicines that we use to prevent and treat bacterial infections. Antimicrobials then, I guess, can be used as a broader term and antimicrobial resistance. You can really refer to resistance to drugs that treat other infections that are caused by other microbes like parasites or perhaps viruses. So there is a tendency to use them interchangeably, so antibiotics and antimicrobials, but antibiotics are are the medicines that we would know, whereas the antimicrobials could be a lot of different and types of, of compounds. So I hope that helps a little bit. It does. Yes. Thank you very much. So, uh, Dr. Murphy, your colleagues and you have written in an article on Nature.com about pressures to understand the mechanisms surrounding antibiotic resistance and the search for alternatives. So let's begin there. Where are we in our understanding about antibiotic resistance? Gosh, um, it's, a, it's an area that's really exciting, actually, because um, when we look at, at antibiotic resistance, it's actually been around for a very, very long time. Um, and there's a lot of more recent work which would look at, I guess, profiling historical samples, say, in, in fossilized remains of, of animals or even in, in mummies from Egypt, for instance. Um, and, we, you know, scientists have been able to identify the presence of resistance gene markers well before what we would call the so-called golden age of antibiotics, which would have been the 1960s and 70s. So really, antimicrobial resistance or antibiotic resistance has been around for a long, long time. And the problem has been that the, the selection pressures that really are driven by not only the use, but the misuse of antimicrobials in disease prevention and treatment in humans and in animals, um, and then as well as improving they're used for improving growth rates in fruit-producing animals. They've both significantly contributed to an accelerated development of AMR. So while antibiotic resistance has been around for a long, long time, I think it's the accelerated development of antibiotic resistance, which is really of what's of concern. That being said, I do think that the intensification of, of agriculture and, and widespread use of AGPs 
along with uh, the use of antibiotics for so-called metaphylaxis that's really allowed for an enhanced spread of resistance. And then right now, I guess the major spread area of concern has been the spread of antibiotics, uh, spread of, of resistance to antibiotics of, of critical importance to humans. And so antibiotics like fluoroquinolones, for instance. The last number of years has really gotten quite interesting in that a lot of the focus has, has started to shift to trying to understand the makeup of the resistance gene markers that are present within the, the gastrointestinal tract ecosystem. So within our GI tracts and within, within the GI tracts of, of animals, you've got an entire population of, of uh, microbes, not just bacteria, but fungi, you've got viruses, you've got protozoa, and, and as well as that group of, of um, organisms, you have a population, for want of a word, of, of resistance gene markers, and that's called the so-called resistome. And so that's a really exciting area. And what that's shown over the last while is that there are hundreds of markers to antibiotic resistance that are present within this MGI tract ecosystem. Some of these can be um, chromosomally incorporated, so on the chromosome of the bacteria or of the fungi, but the majority of them tend to be on, uh, I guess, what we would call as mobile genetic elements. So small pieces of DNA, circular pieces of DNA called plasmids, or we may have other ones called integrons, or they could even be present on on phage that can easily move around, so bacteriophage that can easily move around. I think the biggest area of interest for me has been the demonstration that um, antibiotic resistance is persistent, and that's the way I like to think about it, that once antimicrobial or antibiotic resistance gets a foothold, it can be extremely difficult to get rid of. And you can look at data from a lot of, of, of different monitoring agencies, whether it's um, the ECDC here in the EU or NARMS in the, in the US. A lot of different monitoring agencies produce these really good data sets each year. And they all seem to indicate or they all show that simply restricting or banning the use of antibiotics doesn't necessarily result in an elimination or a very significant decrease in the problems associated with antimicrobial resistance. And that's the biggest, not only area of interest for me, for also, I think it's also one of the biggest areas of concern for me, that while we have a drive towards restricting and reducing the use of antibiotics, which is, is, is very much needed, I think there's less attention paid to how we're actually going to reduce the presence or the prevalence of resistant organisms that are already present within a production system or present within the environment. And that's, the, I think, where the most critical need over the next few years will be is to look at strategies that we can, I guess, re- reduce the prevalence of resistant organisms. So I, I guess that's a, a very whirlwind look uh, at the whole area certainly it's not all encompassing but i think those are the the, the most uh, the most interesting areas to be honest okay well thank you for bringing us up to speed on that um the the eu the european union banned antibiotic use in uh, 2006 and since then there has been this imperative to find ways to support antibiotic restriction while continuing to promote animal health without contributing to antibiotic resistance what have been some important outcomes of that drive to identify alternatives to antibiotics? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question as well. And I think the key message that 
we would see is, is that really there's no silver bullet. So, you know, taking antibiotics out of the diet uh, has been difficult and, and does cause issues for producers. And there is definitely a need to look at this from the point of view of being of it being a multifactorial um, issue that we need to, to, to look at. So, for instance, we need to look at management, uh, hygiene practices, um, antibiotic use for disease prevention in, in animals that do get sick. Uh, but we also need to look at diet and I think we need to look at nutrition more closely as well because within a production system, everything is linked. So while there's no silver bullet to replacing antibiotics, uh, I do think it's, it's a, a much bigger picture that we're trying to look at. Um, and I do think that um, really when we think about replacement of antibiotics, uh, we will need to take into consideration those multiple factors that I mentioned, such as um, animal management, uh, facility hygiene, diet certainly is going to be absolutely critical, and um, nutritional components play a huge role in transitioning is probably a way to, to look at it away from um, antibiotic use and transitioning towards antibiotic-free and, and production systems. What can you tell us about dietary oligosaccharides in feeds as a non-pharmaceutical alternative to antibiotic growth promoters? Again, a really exciting area and, and certainly one that that, antibi- uh, that um, Alltech has been involved with since the, uh, I guess, the, the late 1990s. Really, at the, the heart of it, what we're talking about with dietary oligosaccharides, such as, as, as mannan oligosaccharides, these are, I guess, isolated components that we take from yeast, so from baker's yeast like Saccharomyces cerevisiae, for instance. Uh, and the realization has been that the oligosaccharides that are present within and the yeast cell wall have, have many different functions. So some of them, for instance, can be used to um, reduce the impact of mycotoxin contamination in feed, and some of them, like mananologosaccharides, for instance, and have the ability to control pathogens. And when I talk about controlling pathogens, I guess from a historical perspective, mananologosaccharides would have been viewed as a tool to control E. coli and control salmonella. So they bind the E. coli and salmonella and prevent them from colonizing the GI tract, thereby reducing the overall load of them within the bird, and then obviously reducing problems then associated with consumption of, of contaminated and meat and, and egg products, for instance. Something that is quite of interest when we look at and mananologosaccharides is that typically they are associated with a, a performance response. So we do tend to see improvements in, in feed conversion, we see improvements in weight gain, but critically we also see decreases in mortality as well. So for a producer, they represent a really elegant, I guess, solution or elegant part of the solution to replacing antibiotics in that you can look at them as a way in which you can improve the performance of your your, your uh, and, and livestock and your, your poultry, but also you can begin to reduce the presence of pathogens like E. coli, like salmonella. And more recently, what we have seen is that you do get control of other pathogens uh, like Campylobacter, for instance. And that's through a different mechanism, um, but certainly is a very important um, aspect to the use of, of mananologosaccharides. Are prebiotics, such as yeast MRF, effective alternatives to antibiotics? 
Okay, so when we talk about MRF, what we're actually talking about is, uh, again, a further refinement of the whole mannan oligosaccharide um, concept. Uh, and initially, when we developed our mannan oligosaccharide product in Alltech, we looked at the outer cell wall of Saccharomyces yeast. With MRF, it's actually a, a much more uh, refined structure that's obtained from those mass preparations. And it's characterized, I guess, by being very highly branched, uh, Manon substructure, so we call it a Manon rich fraction. MRF uh, as a prebiotic really does represent a, a very good part of the arsenal that we would have uh, in terms of looking at transitioning producers away from use of antibiotics and transitioning towards antibiotic free diets. And certainly we've developed some quite nice um, data from use of MRF within the laboratory, within the research program here in, in Dunboyne. And we've basically shown that with uh, preparations like MRF, you can have dramatic impacts on the growth and the sensitization of of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. You can actually change the way in which the bacteria metabolizes, uh, and that makes those bacteria more sensitive to the use of of antibiotics. So certainly, yeast MRF do represent a very good part of the puzzle uh, in transitioning away from, from antibiotic use. After that EU ban on antibiotics, there was a turn to zinc oxide, which also turned out to be problematic. How has zinc oxide also contributed to the spread of antimicrobial resistance? Uh, Again, that's a a really good question and one that we could chat really at at length about, to be honest. Um, It tends to get... I guess when you look at the literature, it it can be, um, there is a lot of, I guess, conflict in the literature about whether zinc oxide has or hasn't contributed to the spread of antimicrobial resistance. Personally, uh, I do think it has, and there are quite a number of of excellent publications out there indicating that the use of high levels of of zinc and also high levels of copper, for instance, um, can actually select for co-resistance. Uh, it's a co-resistance mechanism that's being selected for in this case here. Um, and the way in which that can be, I, I guess, easily described is that when you have those um, mobile genetic elements, and um, so those smaller, easily transmissible pieces of um, DNA that carry antibiotic resistance markers, Sometimes they can have markers that encode resistance to um, metals like zinc, like copper, like cadmium, for instance. And and when you have a selective pressure, and what I mean by that is when you have a a high level of zinc or a high level of of copper in an animal's diet, you can actually select for the expression or select for a high level resistance to occur to both the metal and both the antibiotic. So, while there is a little bit of conflict in the literature about it, uh, I think it is pretty clear at this stage that the use of, of high levels of, of zinc, uh, as zinc oxide or high levels of copper, has in part contributed to the development and contributed to the spread of, of antimicrobial resistance. What does the latest research tell us about the benefits of enhancing microbial diversity in the, in the gut? That's a an area that we've been working extensively on over the last number of years. Um, and really the realization here is that when we think about uh, microbial diversity, really what we're talking about is balance of, of bacteria and microbes within the, GI, within the GI tract. And I guess as, as humans for our own diet, we're interested in trying to improve the balance of bacteria within our guts. And the same is true for 
um, our production animals or for our livestock and for our poultry. And we want to take as much uh, care with increasing the, the, the diversity of bacteria within their guts, increasing the balance of bacteria within their guts um, in order to improve their, their health and obviously then in order to uh, improve the, the performance of our poultry and our livestock. So certainly um, when we think about microbial diversity, uh, what we're really trying to do is improve the balance of, of bacteria within the gut. Um, and our own research has, has shown that by use of um, yeast MRF, uh, or by addition of yeast MRF in, in diets, we can in fact improve the balance of bacteria within the, the GI tract so we can get a, uh, an improvement in the overall diversity, which we've definitely been able to link to uh, an increased risk against pathogen colonization. So we get increased, or rather we get decreased colonization with pathogens like Campylobacter, like E. coli, like Salmonella. Uh, and in many respects, I think it, this is a really elegant part of the transition to antibiotic-free diets is that by improving the balance within the GI tract or the microbial balance within the GI tract, we actually allow the, the gut to begin to self-police itself. So we enable the bacterial ecosystem within the gut to more effectively control and more effectively prevent pathogens and from colonizing the GI tract. So I, I really do think that microbial balance or microbial diversity within the gut is a critical part of any um, antibiotic-free program. Why is it important to understand the role of intestinal microbial communities in existing feed additives as well as in the development of new additives? Again, that's a, a great question. And I guess it comes back to trying to understand the factors that influence the diversity of bacteria within the gut or the factors that influence the balance of bacteria within the gut. So it's a, a multifactorial um, um, process. So everything, including um, management practices, hygiene of the facility, the diet that's being used, whether we're changing diets, so going from starter to grower to finisher, and whether we're using nutritional additives, all of these factors together will influence the balance or influence the diversity of bacteria within the gut. So when we make a, a subtle change within the diet, we may actually have a, an impact on that balance or an impact on that diversity. So really we need to think carefully uh, about the impact that a, a change in the diet may have or the use of a, a new additive, what they may have for a, a production system. And really for me, I think it's we, we can take it right back to trying to understand um, how diverse or how good the balance of bacteria within the gut is, any factors that reduce that balance or reduce that diversity, they should be avoided. So really what we need to do is look at um, using additives or, or developing newer additives that solely are designed to improve the balance or improve, improve the diversity of bacteria within the uh, um, GI tract. Has the research made it possible to attribute cause and effect to the way nutrients affect changes in the gut microflora, which are ultimately responsible for digestion and metabolite production? Um, yes, absolutely, it has. And a lot of this is, I guess, has its genesis really in our work, which has looked at the um, diversity or looked at the balance of bacteria within the, the GI tract. And I mean, if if you think about it, uh, within our, our, our guts, we have that ecosystem of microbes and that ecosystem 
I guess it breaks down the, the, the nutrients that are in the diet and they produce short-chain fatty acids, for instance. So if we change the balance of bacteria within the GI tract, we can actually influence the way in which that bacteria functions or the way in which they produce MVFAs or, or short-chain fatty acids. And that's something that we've found with the use of, of MRF, that when you encourage beneficial change of bacteria within the GI tract, so when you improve the balance and improve the diversity of bacteria within the GI tract, you actually begin to change the way they act um, as an ecosystem. And, and that change typically is, is shown by improvements in, in butyrate production or improvements in, in propionate production. And that, to me, is a really good, I guess, proof of our ability to modulate or ability to change metabolite production is that by influencing the bacterial balance, you actually change the metabolites they produce. And in some cases, um, and what's really beginning, beginning to get interesting for us is that the metabolites that are produced in, in certain regions of the GI tract actually have a, a profound influence on the colonization of that region of the GI tract with, with pathogens. A good example of that is our, our work on Campylobacter, where we've basically shown that by using you know, yeast MRF in the diet, you change the balance of bacteria within the cecum. And by changing that balance of bacteria within the cecum, you change the way in which they function. And that function is often demonstrated by changes in butyrate production. And when you get those increased butyrate levels, you actually see decreased campylobacter load in the cecum. So it's quite an elegant way in which we can control campylobacter. Change the balance of bacteria within the cecum. That changed balance then shifts the metabolite production towards more favorable and metabolite-like butyrate, and those butyrate molecules then begin to control Campylobacter or make it less hospitable of an environment for Campylobacter to grow. Okay, you touched on this uh, briefly earlier in our conversation, but I wanted to, to come back to it. Current trends in the world of antibiotic research and the work to identify safe alternatives. And I'm just wondering, among those trends, what excites you most? Um, really, what it's, what's beginning to get, I guess, particularly exciting, but also an area that really needs to be and looked at, are the strategies that we need to look at reducing the prevalence of resistant organisms. So, on the one hand, we do recognise that you know there is a need for newer antibiotics to be developed, uh, so we need to be consistently looking out for antibiotics to uh, replace the ones that we have, which will safeguard us against the development of antimicrobial or antibiotic resistance. But at the same time, uh, I think from, uh, I guess, from a production animal point of view, um, do we actually need to look at using antibiotics at all? Should we be looking more towards, I guess, transitioning to antibiotic-free diets? And, and that's really, I guess, what's of interest to me is how we can enable that research. So how we can not only move towards the ABF diets, so move towards antibiotic-free programs, but also what benefits we can have in terms of will that transition towards an ABF system, will it actually reduce the prevalence of resistant organisms that may be present, say, for instance, from present in the environment that we're growing our production animals in, and can we reduce then and the overall impact of those um, on the animal. Well, tell us about the Alltech solution. It's a seed feed weed program. Um, this is 
uh, a program that we've worked on for a number of years now. And again, it's back to the comment I made earlier about there being no silver bullets. So uh, it can be quite difficult to develop programs whereby you remove antibiotics and replace it with a, a single compound or a single uh, nutritional additive. Really with the seed, feed and weed program, it, it, it's multifactorial. Um, so at its heart, what we're looking at is the seeding, if you like, of, of the uh, and young animal's gut with probiotic bacteria. So that looks at enhancing the resistance of the, the young animal to colonization of, of their guts with, with pathogenic organisms. We have a, a feeding element, which is a low pH element, whereby we use a fairly safe organic acid that reduces the pH within the GI tract, so it makes it less favorable to the growth of, of organisms like Salmonella, like Campylobacter. And then lastly, we have the, the weeding element. So we use yeast MRF and prebiotics as a way in which we can control, further control and further restrict not just the colonization of the gut, and with pathogens like E. coli and salmonella, but then also changing the metabolites that are produced within the gut so that we get decreased campylobacter prevalence, for instance. So a seed, feed, and weed is a, a multifactorial program. Again, there is no silver bullet, I think, to complete antibiotic-free production systems. You need to look at multifactored programs such as this and then also look at management and hygiene practices as well. That's Dr. Richard Murphy, Research Director at the Alltech European Bioscience Center in Dunboyne, Ireland. Thanks, Dr. Murphy. Thank you. I'm Tom Martin. Thank you for listening. This has been Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Ag Future wherever you listen to podcasts.